So we're in a series, we kicked it off last week, where we're focusing on King David of the Old Testament. And this King David, there's so much in his life and his story that allows us to learn some good faith lessons but it also allows us to learn more about the heart of God. So that's kind of the dynamic we're gonna look at through David's story each and every week this summer is the faith lessons from King David and the heart of God. So with that as a backdrop, if you got your Bibles, we are gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And when I say we're gonna be in 1 Samuel 17, I'm just gonna give you all a heads up the whole chapter of 17. If you showed up to church today not expecting to read a lot of scripture, you're in for it because we are gonna read a lot. And the reason being is there's so much in here, you've gotta understand the whole context. And as you're getting to 1 Samuel 17, you might notice the heading, David and Goliath. Oh, maybe the most well-known Bible story of all time. Little David, the underdog, goes against the giant Goliath. And this story is so well-known, even culturally speaking. You don't have to be a Christian to know parts of the story of David and Goliath, because even in our cultural language today, we use David and Goliath to describe everything from sporting events, oh, the underdog, David's facing Goliath, or even in business world about a new business or a young business, a small business going against the big corporations. There are movies. Most of our movies are built around this idea of the underdog, of David and Goliath. So I'm hoping you're going to see maybe a few different things as we go through the story of David and Goliath. But just to make sure we're all on the same page, the actual battle, the actual battle and fight scene of David and Goliath is actually really short. It's only two verses, and I would almost consider it anticlimactic for all the the talk, for all the story leading up to it. Let me read just the, the end result. Here's the actual fight scene. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone, the stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. That's the end of David and Goliath. Like that is the story. He wins. The underdog wins. The little shepherd boy that no one thought deserved to be king, David wins. Now, the point that I want us to to focus on today really doesn't have much to do with those two verses. Those two verses where the fight and the battle actually takes place. I have three things I'd like to accomplish with you all this morning. The first one is to take our time and actually read and learn and gain some good faith lessons from what happened leading up until that moment that David actually fought Goliath. There's a lot in there. Most of this story is leading up to the moment we just read. So I don't want to bypass it. I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want you to miss it. There's a lot of good lessons that we can apply to our own faith that lead up to the actual battle scene. So that's the first thing we're going to do. Second thing we're going to do is pay attention to what happens after David actually won. What happens next? What happened with the Israelites? What happened with the Philistines? What happens after David actually beat Goliath? That's the second thing. And the third thing is other this being a really epic, awesome, cool story, what are we supposed to do with it? How does this actually apply? 
We just sang that song, and I love the lyrics of the song, the same God. The same God of David is the same God of us today. So what does that mean? What are we supposed to do with that? That's the third thing we're going to do. So this first part, like I said, it's a lot of reading. We're going to go through it. We'll go through it kind of quick, so you're going to have to listen really fast. And we're going to pull out some good faith lessons leading up to that actual battle scene. So we'll skip around just a little bit. You'll see the verses on the screen, or if you got your Bible, follow along. But 1 Samuel chapter 17, pick up in verse 3. This sets the scene of the Philistines with Goliath versus the Israelites and David. Verse 3, so the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, the Philistine champion, remember that word. We're going to see it at the very end. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. So that just describes the sheer vision of this man, how tall he was and the weight that he had, the spear that he had, the weapons and the armor. Verse eight, now we get the words of Goliath. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then I will, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. So he's not just intimidating by his look and his appearance and his size. He is also extremely intimidating with his words. And notice how the Israelites responded. Verse 11. When Saul, that's the king currently, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were, and say these last parts with me, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be terrified and deeply shaken? The entire reason, we usually don't get this much detail in, in Old Testament stories, even New Testament stories on exactly what they looked like and exactly what they wore and exactly how heavy their armor. Like we don't see that in a lot of stories. But the intent here is for us reading this historical story is to recognize just how terrified the Israelites would have been, just how deeply shaken they had every right to be because this man was full of fear. He, he exuded fear for us to have, but then also he was just intimidating. So that's that whole first part. We get a good picture of how terrified the Israelites were. Then the, the scene shifts over to David. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that David was actually chosen as the new king. He is not acting king, but he knows he's going to be the future king, and nobody saw that coming. This little shepherd boy, the youngest of his family, nobody thought he deserved it. Nobody thought he should have been king because he doesn't look the part. We said he didn't look the part, but he had the right heart. So the story is going to shift back to David, and he's at home, and notice what happens next. Verse 17, one day, Jesse, that's David's dad, said to David, 
take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they were doing. David's brothers were with Saul in the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So the picture we have of David is not the picture of a warrior at all. This picture that we see of David at the beginning of this David and Goliath story is David out in the shepherd's fields. His dad calls him and says, I need you to deliver some food to your brothers. There's no intent of him fighting. There's no intent on him going to battle. It's truly just take some bread and cheese to your brothers and their captain. And then come back. Don't stay. Come back to me, his father says, and tell me how they're doing. So David's job is not to fight. David's job going into it is to be a delivery boy, an errand boy. Go and deliver some food and then come back and tell me how they are. He does not look like a hero. Now, we read the end of the story, so we know that David is going to fight Goliath. We know that David is going to defeat this nine-foot-tall giant. But in this passage here, David doesn't look the part. Again, we see that a lot in the story of David. He does not look the part. He is an unlikely hero. He's not planning on fighting. He's not planning on going to battle. But we know how the story ends, but no one's going to expect him to do what we know that happens. So David does exactly what his father says. He leaves his sheep with another shepherd. He gets all the food. He heads to the front lines. He finds his brothers and these other Israelite soldiers. And he hears Goliath's taunt. What we read earlier, that taunt that Goliath spoke, he would do that every morning and every evening, every day. So David shows up and hears this giant of a man just mocking the Israelite army. And so David, curious, has no idea what's going on, starts asking around, like, what's happening? Who is that guy? Are you going to fight him? What's going to happen next? David's just asking questions. And notice what his oldest brother does. Verse 28. But David's oldest brother, Eliab, we were introduced to him last chapter in, verse, in chapter 16. When his older brother, oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Let's hang out here just for a second. So if you were here last week, we looked at the story of David being chosen as king. And the firstborn, Eliab, at one look, felt like that should be the king, that he should have been the king. And now we're starting to see a little bit more of Eliab's heart, aren't we? That he's very quick to accuse, that he's very quick to assume, that he might even have some bitterness in his heart. He definitely is angry, might even have some jealousy issues in his heart. So once again, we didn't know this last week. We didn't know this in last chapter. But even though Eliab looked the part of a king, we see some proof starting to come out that he does not have the right heart. So Eliab is, is mocking David. He's making fun of David. He's dismissing David of why are you even here? You're supposed to be taking care of those few sheep. This isn't a place for you, David. David's response is this, verse 29. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. Then he walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. I love David's response here. 
And I think this is one of those faith lessons we can pull out of this. It's not the main point of the story of David and Goliath. You might not have even known this part of the story, but it's a very helpful part of the story for us to gain insight into David's heart because he did not look the part, but he had the right heart. See, when David shows up on the front lines, he sees the main problem, Goliath. He sees the main battle that needs to be fought against Goliath. But then there's also this secondary battle that starts bubbling up. There's this secondary fight that shows up with his oldest brother, Eliab, starting to mock him and make fun of him. And why are you even here? Now, David very well could have engaged with his older brother. Oh yeah, well, dad sent me. I'm not giving you any of that bread and cheese I brought. How about that? Well, I'm the one that actually was chosen as king. Remember that last time, Eliab? Like he could have engaged his oldest brother. He could have retaliated. He could have started fighting back, but he doesn't. I love that about David here. He focuses on the main problem. He focuses not on his oldest brother mocking him. He focuses on Goliath. He makes one sentence to his brother and then moves on. Starts talking with other people. There's a lesson there for us to choose your battles wisely and to remember who the real enemy is. David recognized which battle was worth fighting. It was the battle with Goliath, not his brother. He recognized who the real enemy truly was, Goliath, not Eliab. So for us, what's the real battle we're fighting? Who's the real enemy? And how quickly do we engage all these other secondary battles and fights? Let me just say this if I'm not being clear enough. You do not need to comment on every remark made on Facebook. It's not necessary. That's not helpful. It's not going to solve any problems. I've never heard, and I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, talk to me afterwards, and I'll change it for next service. I've never seen a post on Facebook change things for the good. I haven't seen that. Right? All it does is creates more tension and more fighting, and, and we keep going at it, don't we? Do you know that your opinion matters, but not every opinion we have needs to be shared all the time to everyone? Did you know that? Like, you are allowed to have an opinion. Like, I'm glad you have an opinion, but that opinion doesn't always have to be shared. And it doesn't always have to be shared with everyone. Spouses, man, we're so good at picking these fights with each other, aren't we? We nitpick what each other say and we're sarcastic and we fight these little fights. Your spouse is not the enemy. Choose your battles wisely and remember who the real enemy is. If you need more on that, if you're like, oh man, I feel really convicted right now. Brian's been reading my Facebook and messages. If that's you, first of all, I'm not. Um, uh, some of you I do see, uh, but not all of you by any stretch. But if that's you, let me encourage you to read and memorize Ephesians 4.29. I've made my kids memorize this in our house. Ephesians 4.29, maybe that'll help you just a little bit in choosing your battles more wisely. Just a side little faith lesson we see from David's heart. So David's been asking around, who's this Goliath guy? What are we gonna do as the Israelite army? Verse 31, the next part of the story. Then David's question was reported to King Saul. So David started to get some attention and the king sent for him. I love David's response to the king. This is great. Verse 32, don't worry about this Philistine. David told him, I'll go fight him. Don't worry about it, King Saul. 
I got it. I know you got this massive army and I know he's a big dude, but don't you worry about it. I've got it. Verse 33, an understandable response. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. And look at Saul's reasoning why. Look at this next part. You're only a boy. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. That's a very, very important statement from Saul. David, you're only a boy. This is not the only time, and it will not be the last time, that David was judged by his outward appearance. We saw that again in chapter 16. We'll see this again later on. That Saul looks at David and doesn't see any reason why he could win this fight. You are only a boy. You don't have the power. You don't have the experience. You don't have the understanding. You don't have the strength. There's nothing about you, David, that gives us reason to think you could win. There's no way. That's all Saul could see, is just David, this little shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers, once again, an unlikely hero. But he did not look the part of a king, and he most certainly does not look the part of a warrior or a hero. But David persisted. The next part of the story, David's going to explain to Saul why he can fight, why he's going to fight, and why he's going to win. This is pretty famous. This is a pretty familiar passage for most of us. Verse 34, so David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. Oh man, whoa. I had no idea you were such a warrior taking care of sheep and goats. Saul had to have been thinking. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, oh my. And I will do this. I will do this to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Look at this last part. Here's the main reason. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Do you see what David just did there for Saul? He said, I've spent a lot of time in the fields as a shepherd. And I feel like Saul's like, and how's that helpful in the fields as a shepherd? I'm not seeing the connection here to beating a nine foot warrior. He said, no, you don't understand. I've gained experience in those fields. I was given opportunities in those fields. I grew in those fields. See, the fields for David was a place for him to gain experience, to be prepared for what's next. But it didn't end there. It was also a time for God to prove his faithfulness to David. That's one of the best parts about the fields. And we can view our own lives in that way as well those different seasons of life where we just feel like nothing's happening and nothing's working. I'm not amounting to anything. Those are the seasons where we are preparing, getting prepared. Those are also the seasons where God proves his faithfulness. And so now, right on the eve of battle, why is David able to step foot on this battlefield against Goliath when no one else thinks he can? Because he spent time in the fields that prepared him. 
and God proved his faithfulness. And for David to say that, what God did for me in the fields, he's going to do on the battlefield. What God did for me when I was fighting the lions and the bears, he's going to do when I fight this warrior. God was faithful then. I believe he's going to be faithful now. Don't miss the significance of that statement. When God was faithful then, he will still be faithful now. I want to give you a statement. This is a hypothetical maybe statement, and maybe this hits you right where you're at. It's a little bit long, but maybe it'll hit you right where you're sitting. Maybe for you, this is a season that God is using to prepare you and prove his faithfulness to you so you will be ready for whatever comes next. Maybe. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Not on the battlefield, but in the fields. And I'm telling you, God does not waste a season in the fields. Ever. He will prepare you. He will grow you. He will develop you. And he will prove his faithfulness to you. So that whatever comes next, you're ready. Not because of your own abilities, but you're ready because of the faithfulness of God that he has already proved to you. So I don't know how you can, can push against that. Saul finally consented, we're told. He consented and said, all right, go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. Now, I would like to believe that Saul truly believed that line, and may the Lord be with you. I feel like that's just a, yeah, good luck, kid. You're going to need it. That's what it really feels like. Because notice what Saul does next. Then Saul gave David his own armor and a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. So may the Lord be with you. And God's going to need some help. So let me give you some of my armor. That's what Saul's doing here. And we see, we'll see this a whole lot more in the coming weeks, but we see a very stark contrast between David's faith and Saul's faith. David's faith, what God did for me in the fields, he's going to do for me on the battlefield. Saul's response was, yeah, this isn't going to work. You're going to need some of my help. You see the difference there? What God has done in the past, I believe he will do again. That's David's heart and his faith. Saul's faith was only based on what he saw. So Saul feels like he needs to help God along. Let me give you some of this armor. Let me give you some of these weapons. You're going to need all the help you can get. God might be good, but you're going to need something else is what Saul is getting across. David says, thanks, but no thanks. There's no way that's going to help me. And so he sticks to what he knows. Another familiar part of the story, verse 40. So David picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine army. This is going to be important for later, so let's make sure we're on the same page. Is David by himself, yes or no? He, other than God. Physically, he is by himself. God's with him. Nobody else from the army showed up with him, right? Saul didn't go out with him. Nobody else goes out with him. It's just David and the Lord. He's by himself other than with God. So Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. Don't ever tell me the Bible's boring. Verse, it's like the original Game of Thrones. Verse 45. 
David replied to the Philistine, you come to me. This is David's like, oh yeah, well, this is David's rebuttal. You come to me with the sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will cut you and cut off your head. How about that, Goliath? And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. Very different speeches from Goliath and David. Goliath's speech was just mocking. Who do you think you are? Look at how big I am. Look at how weak you are. Look at how strong I am. You have no business fighting me. Here's what I'm going to do. David's speech is very different. David's speech is, oh, you don't know my God yet. David's speech was not focused on himself or even on Israel. David's speech was focused on the Lord. We see it again and again and again that it's the Lord of heaven's army. It's the God of the armies of Israel. The Lord will conquer you. The Lord rescues his people. It's the Lord's battle and the Lord is going to give you to us. Very, very different approaches. And David's focus, even through his language, but we know it's in his heart as well, is all about God. Then we get to the very anticlimactic Fight itself, verse 48, we read it earlier. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag, taking out a stone, hurled it in his sling, taking it and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. We spent the last 20 minutes getting all the way to this part now. All the leading up to the battle, we get to see David's heart, we get to see Saul's heart. We get to see the heart of some of the Israelites. They were terrified. They were deeply shaken. They were afraid, and rightfully so. David steps out with God's help wins, and here's the main point. What happens after David wins? When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. When David beat Goliath, two things happened. The Philistines ran away in fear, and the Israelites advanced with confidence. Let me say it one more time because this is going to be huge for us in a second. The Philistines ran away in fear, and the Israelites, Israelites advanced with confidence. They no longer lived in fear. The Israelites. Remember how this whole thing started? They were terrified. They were afraid. They were deeply shaken, and rightfully so, but not anymore. And here's the big piece. Ready? The Israelites didn't do a thing. The people of God did not do a thing. It was what somebody did for them that changed it all. In other words, the Israelites, their fear was removed, their confidence was renewed, their hope was restored, and it had absolutely nothing to do with what they did. 
but it had everything to do with what one unlikely hero did for them. That's the story of David and Goliath. That the Israelites did nothing, yet David did everything. The Israelites were terrified and afraid, and rightfully so. And David, an unlikely hero, showed up. He did not, notice what he did not do. David doesn't rally the troops, does he? He doesn't give the Braveheart speech. He doesn't get them to charge and face their fears. He doesn't help them muster an inspiration inside of them to go and fight their own battles, to charge on the Philistines. No, David doesn't do any of that. David says, I've got it. I've got it for you. And David stepped out on that battlefield by himself for the people of God. He put his life on the line for them. He fought the battle for them and won the battle for them. David is a very unlikely hero that nobody thought had any business fighting this fight, but nobody else could do anything about it either. See, the David and Goliath story, oftentimes when you hear it, it tends to be viewed and applied through the lens of, well, you are David and Goliath is your fear. Goliath is your sin. Goliath is your opposition. And so you need to, like David, have faith in the Lord. What he's done before, he will do again. And then you need to be inspired to fight your own battles. That's oftentimes how this this story is is applied. And there's, I'm not saying that's completely inaccurate, but what I see for me personally, at least, and maybe you, maybe you agree and, and resonate with this with me, is when I read this story, I feel like I'm more like the Israelites, that I'm scared, and I'm terrified, and I am helpless, and I am hopeless, and I need somebody else. I'm desperate for a hero to fight my battles for me. And an unlikely hero shows up and does just that. See, King David is an unlikely hero that nobody thought was an actual warrior, but he resembles another unlikely hero who fought a much greater battle for more than just the Israelites. Let me read this for you. This unlikely hero was also sent by his father who left his home of glory to be with his people who were in need, lost, and afraid. He showed up as a humble servant by bringing food and a message, but ended up on the front lines of battle. His brothers mocked him and leaders didn't believe him. He seemed, it seemed like there was no way he would win or ever could win. He was just a carpenter from Nazareth. But his power came from God and this battle was about everyone knowing the truth and love of God. This unlikely hero would step out onto the battlefield for God's people, also alone, by himself, to do for them what they could not do themselves. And he one. He conquered fear, sin, and death. And in doing so, his victory gives us peace, confidence, hope, and life. And we no longer have to live in fear, but get to live life abundantly. Our unlikely hero fought your battle for you so you don't have to. Jesus' words, John 16, 33, 
He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have, you see it up there? In what? Have what? Peace. That we would have peace in him. Why do we have peace in him? He tells us, here on earth you will have many trials, you will have many sorrows, you will have many Goliaths that you will have to face, but take heart because you can do it. But take heart because you can fight through it. No, he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have already fought for you and I have already won. So let's get real practical. How do we do that? How do we remember that every fear we face, every sin we face, every difficulty we face, every problem we face, how do we allow Jesus to fight that for us like he already has? Hebrews chapter 12, verse one through three tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us, us, trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has marked out before us. In other words, how do we walk through life knowing we're gonna face struggles? That's the big question, right? How do we run with endurance when we know we're gonna face a Goliath? How do we run this race with endurance when we know we're gonna have the sins and the struggles that do trip us up? How are we supposed to do that? How do we find the fight to face those kinds of fears? Here's the answer. Please don't miss it. Verse two, we do this. We run that race by keeping our eyes on Jesus. You ready? The champion. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, not us. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Church, our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. That sounds like we oversimplify it, but sometimes we make it too complicated. What do you do when you face Goliath? You don't look at Goliath, you look at Jesus because he's already fought the battle and he's already won. In him, there is no fear. In him, there is no sin because he's taken that away. He's already won. We fix our eyes on Jesus, keeping our eyes on him. So how do we do that? Let's get very practical. That sounds like almost as good as, well, just let go and let God. Like, how do I actually do that? How's it helpful? That word, that phrase there that, we're, that we just read, keeping your eyes on Jesus is to really fixate on something. And you've seen this in other parts of life when people are fixated on something. A lot of us are fixated on our phones. So what do we do if we're fixated on our phones? It's always there. It's always on. We're always checking it. We always want to know. That's to be fixated. It's in front of you and you're always aware of it and you're even a little obsessive about it. That's what it means to be fixated. I don't know if you've met somebody like this or not. I've, I've met a few. They're great people, and they're very inspiring. Have you ever met somebody that's fixated on drinking water? Like, they just know if you drink a lot of water, you'll be healthy, and there's a lot of truth in that, absolutely. But you know these people because they carry this around. <laughs> they don't carry this around. This is what I carry around. No, if you're fixated on drinking water, they got this attached to their belt. 
And they walk around because they know that I'm gonna drink a lot of water if I have it in front of me. And if it's a constant reminder, and if I never forget about it, and if it's always with me, and if it gives me goals along the way, I will drink more. I promise you, if you have one of these, you will drink more water, I guarantee it. Because it's in front of you, it's around you. The same thing, if your phone is always out, you will always check it. If your email is always on, you're always gonna check it. It's in front of you. And I think sometimes in a Christian life, our faith is so far removed, we are not fixated on it because it's not in front of us. So I wanna give you two challenges for this week. I'm pretty convinced I'm right. And I 100% could be wrong on this, but I want you to indulge me, do an experiment with me. I'm convinced I can get you to fixate on Jesus more this week if you'll do two things with me. I'm gonna do it too, two things. The first one, is your Bible, to go home, physical Bible. If you don't have one, I've got a stack out here, grab one. I want you to open your Bible to Hebrews 12 and I want you to leave it on your kitchen table for the entire week. I want it to sit there. Does that mean you're gonna read it every day? Maybe not, but are you gonna see it and think about Jesus? Absolutely. Are you gonna walk out of the house and are you gonna see that Bible as you walk out? Yep. And are you gonna stop and go back and read? Maybe not, but are you gonna at least think about Jesus? Yep. To fixate means to think of constantly. So would you be willing, open your Bible to Hebrews 12, that's what we just read about keeping our eyes on Jesus, and leave it on your kitchen table. I bet your dinner conversations change. I bet your breakfast conversations change because it's open and it's in front of you. There's the first thing. The second thing is I'm gonna give you a rubber band as you leave today. Why a rubber band? There's nothing spiritually significant about it other than it's different, and I don't think anybody's got one right now. It's something different. It makes you think. So every time that rubber band kind of catches or every time you look at that rubber band, why am I wearing this stupid thing again? Oh, yeah, Brian's trying to get me to think about Jesus a little bit more. So it's just to give you a reminder, and I'm going to challenge you to think of three things, to think about God's promises, his faithfulness, and his love. Every time you see your Bible open on the kitchen table, that's right, I'm supposed to think about his promises, his faithfulness, and his love. Well, I don't know the promises of God. I don't know about his faithfulness. I don't know his love. Awesome, start reading. Start reading and looking through, and I promise you're gonna discover some really cool things. Every time you see as you're driving and that rubber band shows up in front of you, oh yeah, I'm supposed to think about his promises, his faithfulness, and his love. Think about Jesus consume your heart and mind with the things of Jesus. That's the story of David and Goliath. It is not to inspire us to fight our fears and to fight our own battles. The story of David and Goliath is reminding you and reminding me that Jesus already has. He is our champion. He is our Lord. He is our savior. He is our king and he has already won. And the life that we get to live is not a life in fear, but a life full of hope and confidence and joy because he has won. Last thing I'm gonna have us do, and this will tie into our last song, I'm gonna put a question for you to fixate on. Do you see what I did there? Here's the question. Why is God so good? I want you to practice just thinking about the goodness of God. So every time you see your Bible opened on the kitchen table, every time you see your rubber band, some of these things will start to come to mind. Why is God so good?